Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to wrap up the uh, teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going we're to wrap up the last couple verses in the passage next Sunday. Uh, but this morning we're going to be looking at verses 21, uh, excuse me, 24 through 27. Uh, before we get into the sermon, I failed to mention one thing. Uh, all of us, I know, are uh, anxious uh, about what's going to be happening in our city whenever the grand jury comes back with, uh, with their indictment or not indictment. And uh, instead of trying to uh, figure out how all that is going to play out and what we should do, what we're going to say as a congregation is whatever day that, that announcement comes out, whether it's tomorrow or next Friday or next week or next month or whenever, uh, that day at 6 o'clock, the church office is going to be open, and we want to invite anybody who would like to come and pray uh, to meet us there at the office. Uh, we'll be there from probably 6 to about 7. We'll be there as long as we need to, but thinking maybe an hour and just have a prayer time. Uh, you could kind of come and go if you can only be there for a few minutes, but if you can come and stick around for a while and pray for our city, uh, I think it's probably one of the most important things we could do. So whatever that day is, uh, that's our plan, and we'll send out a note this week uh, and just let everybody know because clearly everybody doesn't quite make it on uh, every Sunday morning, but that's, uh, that's our plan. About 20 years ago, I was uh, having lunch with a guy who was a very regular church attender. He was a friend, uh, and yet there was something in the pit of my stomach that made me a little bit nervous about his actual spiritual condition. And I, and I don't know that I could tell you, you know, it was, it was what he said on this particular day or it was this activity that I looked at and, and kind of made me just a little bit uneasy about his spiritual condition. But maybe, maybe it was a sum of a bunch of small things. Uh, but I decided that I was going to take him out to lunch and just we were going to talk about faith. And we did that. And we talked about um, our worship experience at the particular church where we were worshiping. We talked about uh, the gospel of Jesus and what that really meant. Uh, that we are sinners saved by grace and not by our efforts. We are saved by God's mercy, by God's compassion, uh, and not by our own goodness. And we just kind of walked through the gospel, had a long, pleasant conversation. Uh, there was no rancor in it. There was no, uh, there was no uh, serious banter back and forth, no hurt feelings. Uh, but at the end of the conversation, I, you know, I kind of wanted to, to say, you know, what about this do you believe or, or, or not believe? Do you, do you believe the gospel? Uh, and he looked at me with a smile on his face. He said, no, that, that part of the message really isn't for me. I said, well, I, I don't quite understand the connection then. Maybe you could help me because I see you in church every Sunday. I see you, you know, doing some good things. I, you know, I see you as a guy who's trying to love his family well. And, and uh, you know, so what is it? What's the draw? And he said, well, it, church just helps me be a better person. That was his response. Is that, a, is that a response of faith? Now, I don't want you to jump to a conclusion. I don't want you to jump to an automatic answer there. I, I really want you to think about this. Is, is that really what it means to, to be a disciple of Jesus? Um, I firmly believe in my heart that there are any number of people in this room this morning that would embrace that notion of faith, that it really is about becoming or being a better person. It really is about uh, knowing that my kids are going to be taught good morals in Sunday school class. But is that really the journey of faith? Is that really the life of faith? And this is a question not for you to consider or for me to consider about the person sitting to our right or the person sitting to our left or in front of us or behind of us. It's a personal question. 
It's a question that Jesus wants to ask and does ask every one of us gathered here together this morning. How do we apply the Sermon on the Mount? Since August of last year, of 2013, we have been wading through this sermon. And this is the longest sermon I've ever taken to preach. It's taken me a year and a half to preach this sermon. Jesus did it in a few hours. And now we have to ask the questions of application. We began to ask those last week. We're going to continue to ask them this week and next week. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What do you do with the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Hear the word of God. Jesus is teaching. He's teaching his disciples. And he says this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against it, beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we come in in desperate, desperate need of your grace. And yet, Father, there are times when we lose sight of it. There are times when, when we forget what it truly means to be on a journey of faith. Or maybe perhaps we've never really considered what exactly that means. So, Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak into the hearts and minds and lives of every person gathered in this room, from the person doing the speaking to those doing the listening to those who are distracted about the worries of this life, uh, to those who are wondering if it's going to stay cold and snow tonight. <laughs> Father, many, many things on our hearts and our minds. We, we are a preoccupied people. And I pray that you would settle us, that you would quiet us, that you would allow us to Uh, Not look ahead to next week or think about last week, but rather, Father, to consider the words of our Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that we would not listen to my human words. They're of no importance, no weight. It is only your eternal word uh, that will save us, that will redeem us. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come, that you would teach us. Don't let me, my sin, stand in the way of your message of grace this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. So how are we going to apply the Sermon on the Mount according to Jesus? I want to give you the sermon in a sentence, and then we'll, we'll kind of walk through it a little bit this morning. Faith and unbelief can look very much alike. There are a lot of similarities when you look at two lives, one that has faith and one that has unbelief. But Jesus says there are glaring differences. And what we're after, as we've said the entire time, is we're after an undivided heart. Uh, that we would follow the Lord, that we would rely on his faithfulness. So what we want to do this morning in this passage is basically two things. We want to look at the similarities. They look very much alike, and there are some similarities here in, uh, in attitude, uh, at least on the outside, in actions on the outside. Uh, there are also very stark differences. So we want to look at both of those this morning. Let's begin by looking at the similarities as Jesus talks about these two people who are in the process of building a house. The first similarity is that they both received the same instruction. 
in verse 24 and verse 26, Jesus talks about those who hear these words of mine and then respond by either doing them or not doing them. So the, there's one person uh, that is blessed if they do the will of, of Jesus, right? And so the notion here is that whoever you are, whatever you happen to think about Jesus, his instruction to you this morning is that you would put his words into practice in your life on a daily basis. In other words, that you would come to him in faith, that you would believe and that you would trust that his word is authoritative, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that he is the redeemer. He is the one who has the power to save you. He is the one whose death and resurrection are the, the means by which God brings salvation to mankind. And Jesus' instruction to you, Jesus' instruction to me, is that we would believe that and that our lives would reflect that belief. Well, how does my life reflect that belief? And that's the Sermon on the Mount. And as you go through and you read chapters 5 through 7, you see the application of faith right in front of you. Just to give you a couple of examples, Jesus says in chapter 5, be salt and light. Make a difference in your culture. Stand for the gospel. Make sure that people know the way to salvation by how you live, by how you speak. So I know that when I leave this room and I go throughout my week's business, part of my responsibility of faith Part of my trusting in Jesus is to make sure that my life represents his grace. Jesus says in, uh, in chapter 5 later, I says, don't hate your brother. Love your brother unconditionally. Trust me in this. That's an act of faith on your part. Jesus says, learn how to pray. I'm going to teach you how to pray. Let me give you some instruction on that. And my response in faith is to say, yes, Lord, teach me how to pray. In faith, I want to be a person of prayer. Jesus says, give generously without calling attention to yourself as you give. Give a lot, give an abundance, but, but be real quiet about it. Because it's not about you earning a, winning a popularity contest. It's not about you having people go, oh, look at that wonderful person. Look at how generous they are. Rather, it's about you entering into my heart of generosity and ex experiencing faith as you give. The instructions are the same. The activity is also the same. Again, in verses 26, there's a man who built his house. Then there's another fella who built his house. The activity is the same. So the, the building of the house is actually a, a life of faith. Or as we'll see as we come to the differences later on, it's a life of building something else. It's a life of placing your faith in something other than Jesus, but the activity is similar. The building the house is metaphorical language for your life and for my life. And notice that both people, as they build and as they, as they go into inhabit their home, are faced with the same challenges. In verses 25 and verse 27, Three things happen. The rains fall, the floods come, and the winds blow, and it beats on the house. The same thing happens again in verse 27 to the second house. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against that house. They face the same challenges. We say this often at Green Tree Community Church, but I'll say it again for those who maybe are newer to us. If somebody told you being a Christian took away all your problems, they lied to you. 
They simply did not tell you the truth. Some of the things that some Christians I know this week dealt with cancer or some other illnesses that are of similar ilk in nature and their severity. I've talked with Christian friends this week whose businesses are struggling. I've talked with Christian friends this week who are, who are worried sick about their children and some things that are happening in their lives. As, as we mentioned before, all of us are kind of under, the, under this fog of what's going to happen when the grand jury comes back with their decision. And all of that happens in the context of following Jesus, of building your house. If you are a Christian, you're not immune to the struggles and the challenges of this world. The same is true for those who don't put their faith in Christ. Let's stay with, with that one for just a minute. And that is that the floods will continue to come. The rains will continue to fall. So every circumstance of our life as we build presents challenges to our life. For the Christian, it's the challenge of faith. For the disciple of Jesus, it's can I believe Jesus in every circumstance of my life? Can I truly trust him? Can I continue to follow him, not just giving intellectual assent to him being the king and the Lord, but actually living my life in submission to him, even when I look at my life and go, this is really bad. I don't like what I see right now. Lord, are you sure you're still driving the car? It seems like maybe you've taken a break and didn't tell me about it. Even in those moments, as my house is going up, as my life unfolds, am I believing and trusting in Jesus? Because the rains will come. And for those of you who, that, who have placed your faith somewhere else, maybe your faith is in yourself, in your own abilities, in your own giftedness. Maybe your, your faith is, is in your local government, maybe your national government. Maybe your faith is in your heritage. Maybe your faith is in, is in the family in which you were brought up and lived. Wherever your faith happens to rest in all your resources, your finances, wherever they are, the rains are still going to come in your life. The floods are still going to rise. The wind is still going to beat against your house. But that's not the only challenge that we face. The only challenge that is similar that, that we all face together in mankind is not limited to this life. Because you see, whether you, whether you believe it or not, every one of us is going to have to stand before God. And the judgment of God is also represented in this rain and this flood and this wind. And what will stand when God speaks to us and says, why should I let you into my heaven? What is it about you that puts you in right relationship with me? You see, the same question is asked of everyone. And they have the same goal as well. The same goal is what? That they would have a house that stands, verse 25 and 27. Again, they want a house that does not fall. I remember when we were, uh, when we were kids, we used to sing this song in Sunday school about the wise man built his house upon the rock. Uh, we're, going back to, uh, we're going back to triptychs. Anybody remember that song as a kid? The wise man built his house upon a rock, right? And the rains came down, the floods came up, the rains yeah, did the hand motions, right? And, uh, but the house on the rock stood firm, right? And then you did the foolish man, and all the motions were the same, except he, he didn't build it on the rock, he built it on the sand, right? And the rains and the floods and all that stuff happens. And at the very end of the song, you go, and the house on the sand went splat really loud, right? You know, splat, you know, and you're four years old and 10 years old. Splat sounds really good, you know, and now I'm 55. And I think about what splat actually means. And it's a scary thought because it's not just in this life that we want to build a house that's warm and dry and safe and secure because God didn't just make us for this life. 
God created us to be in an everlasting relationship with him through Christ. And, and when I sang that song, it went splat. I had no idea what I was thinking or what it meant. I don't know that I would have actually. I may have had a, a moral reason to not sing the song because it speaks of God's judgment. And no one escapes God's judgment. You don't escape God's judgment. I don't escape God's judgment. We don't escape. We come out from under it because God passes judgment onto Jesus. And he stood in our place. Or we take that judgment on ourselves. But every one of us who have the same goal of wanting a house that stands will face a God that says, let's, let's test the foundation. Let's see how this house is made. Which brings us to the differences. And the differences are stark. They're, they're, they're glaring. They're not subtle. And they are alarming. The first is, difference is the choice that is made. One foundation is built upon a rock, and the other one has built his house upon the sand. Uh, when, when we uh, would go to the beach with high school kids, we'd do week-long trips. We would work hard on building some really, really cool sandcastles. This isn't one that, that I happen to be part of building, but it would not be unusual for us if we had you know, an all-afternoon from noon till about 7 o'clock at night for 15 or 20 high school kids to come up with something like this, and it was good until the tide came in, right? It wasn't going anywhere. It was going to last for a while, but it was made of sand. And the choice of faith is a choice of building our house upon bedrock or our choice of building our house upon the sand, which leads to the difference in the titles. Because Jesus says both houses are being built in, in human history. There are houses going up on the rock all the time, and there are houses going up on the sand all the time, but Jesus applies titles to us depending upon the choice we make on where we build. So we run into the wise man who builds his house upon a rock. And then we run into the foolish man. But first, the wise man. The wise man is the one who practices good building principles. That he understands that no matter what else happens, you have to get the foundation right. You can make mistakes in building your house. We built our house in Kirkwood in 1997, and, and it isn't unusual for Cindy and I to sit down over a cup of coffee and say, now, if we ever did this again, if we ever decided to, to build another house, what would we do differently? And I can tell you one thing that never comes up in the conversation. We would never say, well, we really don't like our, our really good foundation that we'd have. We'd really like to have a bad foundation. We'd really like to build a house that maybe in about eight years would just fall over. <laughs> That never comes up. Like, man, maybe we'd do this room a little different. You know, maybe we, we'd do the kitchen a little bit like this instead of a little bit like that. But we never talk about the foundation. It's rock solid. And that's exactly what you need because we had a wise builder who built a good foundation. In other words, wisdom is simply knowledge applied. So you talk to a builder and you say, you got a poor foundation, you got to make a solid foundation. They say, well, if you're going to do that, then you got to do it in this kind of weather and you got to do it with this kind of concrete. And they know how to apply that knowledge to making sure you have a good foundation. Let's really hope the guys at Parent Construction know what they're doing when they lay a foundation. We're paying a lot of money to make sure they get it right. But wisdom is simply knowledge applied. And when that is done, good building principles happen then the title is one of wise. And Jesus says, you're wise to believe me. You're wise to trust me. You're wise to follow me. Follow me. But then there's another one who says, I hear it. I understand what you're saying, but no thank you. And the foolish man 
builds his house where there is no opportunity for a serious foundation. The foolish man is described as one who ignores knowledge, who ignores the truth, and makes decisions based upon that which is false. So you think about building your house on a beach, and what's the big fear for, I don't know, some of you have houses in and around vacation homes around the beach. What's your big fear? Your big fear is that either there'll be a bad storm that'll come by, a hurricane, and it'll knock everything over, or that the beach will erode and your house may be a little too close. So I did some research for you this week. I want you to know I'm looking out for you. I went to Scientific American, and I found out some things about beach erosion that I think would probably be helpful for you that maybe have a house on, on the, on the a real live Sand, not the metaphorical sand. Uh, unfortunately for beach lovers and owners of the high-priced beachfront homes, coastal erosion in any form is usually a one-way trip. According to Stephen Leatherman, who is also known as Dr. Beach, of the National Healthy Beaches campaign. Did you know there was a National Healthy Beaches campaign? See, you get all this great stuff when you come to Green Tree Community Church. According to the NHBC... Beach erosion is defined as the actual removal of sand from a beach to deeper water offshore. It's an astounding piece of information. I didn't know that. The sand actually leaves the shore when the tide pulls it out. And, but Dr. Beach and this organization have filled this in for us. This is very helpful. Leatherman also cites the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency who estimates that between 80 and 90% of sandy beaches along America's coastline have been eroding for decades. This has been going on since before we were born. This has been happening for generation after generation. There is little that individuals, let alone coastal landowners, can do to stop beach erosion. Building a bulkhead or a seawall along one or a few coastal properties may protect homes from damaging storms and waves for a few years, but could end up doing more harm than good. Other than, and this is where they get really brilliant, other larger scale techniques like beach nourishment may have better track records, at least in terms of slowing or delaying beach erosion, but are expensive enough as to warrant massive taxpayer expenditures. In the early 1980s, the city of Miami spent $65 million adding sand to a 10-mile stretch of fast-eroding shoreline. So the answer to building the house on a place that is going to automatically erode is to bring in more of the same material. Pardon me if I'm skeptical. Pardon me if I say that doesn't sound very smart. And the title that Jesus gives, with all due respect, brothers and sisters, is an appropriate title. To think that I can, can ignore the word of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and build anything that's going to last into eternity, to have a home that will last, really makes me a fool. Jesus says to his disciples at the very outset of this sermon, be poor in spirit. In other words, know that you need a savior. Know that you need grace and mercy and that's the means by which you come into a relationship with God, the response to that is not to work harder at self-improvement. Jesus says, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. The response is not that I hit, that, my, that I pray that my enemy will be hit by a bus. Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth, where moth and rust 
corrosion, thieves can whittle away at it till there's nothing left. The response is not to bet against the market and amass wealth now while ignoring eternity. You see, wisdom applies knowledge to life through faith. There's a stark difference not only between the choice but between the title that Jesus gives because he knows the outcome. When Jesus preached this sermon, he knew the end of the story already. And because we have the word of God, we can join him in that knowledge this morning. And the outcomes are radically different. What happens? The wise man's house experiences the storm, but it does not fall. The foolish man experiences the same storm, the same winds, the same judgment of God. And his house experiences total and absolute destruction. Because the offer of grace comes to all of us through the cross of Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount is simply Jesus' expression of how that faith works its way out in our lives. You don't earn your salvation by following the Sermon on the Mount. You follow the Sermon on the Mount because you've been saved by grace and Jesus wants to tell you what it's like to be his disciple. You don't follow the Sermon on the Mount out of dread. If you make a mistake here or there, you don't get it right that God's going to kick you out of heaven. You follow the Sermon on the Mount because you're assured of your salvation because the grace and mercy of God never change. And when Jesus saves you and, and brings you into his family, it's a done deal. And he never loses you. He never lets go of you. And he allows us then to follow him in our lives so that other people can see and experience what we've seen and experienced and come to salvation. So just like there are similarities and differences this morning, ultimately, there are two options. The first, as I've just mentioned, is the option of trust. It's the option of faith. It means that I'm going to abandon every other thing that can prop up my life. Food, sex, money, fame. And I'm going to put my complete trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And then my life is going to be built on the foundation of that trust. My life over the years hopefully will begin to look a little bit more like the Sermon on the Mount. So other people maybe would say, I want to know Jesus too. But there's also the option of unbelief. There's the option of rejection. Jesus doesn't force you to put your faith in him. He offers you salvation. And Jesus says the, the, the picture of unbelief is hearing but ignoring the offer. And then it's a life built on, on a foundation of, of what? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come to this teaching this morning and we are perhaps disturbed that you would use such a stark picture uh, as a house being destroyed by the storms that you would uh, call us to a discipleship, to a life of faith that ultimately believes in you above everything else and ignores any, any notion of self-salvation and calls us to abandon all of that and trust that we are building our lives upon a rock. And you tell us that the outcomes are very different. Father, I pray for every soul in this room that we would know the grace and mercy of God. That we would see the gift that you are giving to us. That we would see your sacrifice on the cross 
as the means of our salvation and that you would give us the wisdom to put our faith in you, to trust you, and then to put these words of yours into practice in our lives so that our faith would be nourished and so that others would see and hear and experience the gospel of life. Father, keep us from our own foolishness. Keep us from abandoning or rejecting this message based on human pride uh, or a desire to prove ourselves or just wanting to ignore the reality of the situation. Father, draw us to yourself in love and in grace and mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So.